Welcome to Pullback. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. Trying to be a good person can be overwhelming in our complex global marketplace. In this podcast, we try to make it a little easier by looking at the details behind consumer movements, product labels, and ethical lifestyles. Each episode, we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption. Then we tell you what we learned, fuck-ups and all. So this episode, we're going to be looking at clothing. Uh, We decided to do an episode on clothing based on some listener requests, which is very exciting. I mean, we were going to do one anyways, but this is by far the number one thing people have been asking for. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm excited about it, but it is a very big topic. So what we decided to do is to basically split this episode into a three-parter, just based on the amount of research we have. We're assuming that'll be how long it's going to be. We'll see. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you read, what, like 12 books for this? So I feel like it's going to go on a little bit. Uh, The thing about the clothing industry is that it feels like every time you flip over a rock, there's like more stuff to flip over. Like, ah. Yeah, basically, like, name a problem in the world and... The clothing industry is somehow involved in it. It's really astounding. Uh, Yay! Yay. (laughs) So um, I'll just lay out quickly how the three-parter is going to go. So part one, which is what you're listening to right now, uh, is going to look at people in clothing. So it'll look at human rights, workers' rights, things like that. Then part two, we'll look at clothing and the environment, also an important issue. And then in part three, we're going to focus on the strategies that you can employ to have a conscious closet. So what is it that you do about all of this information? That'll be part three. Which I'm looking forward to. That's going to be my favorite one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. But I think you can't really, you can't really approach that until you've learned about what's really causing the human rights issues and the environmental issues in the clothing industry. I'm glad that there's a light at the end of this. I feel like what's going to be a long, dark tunnel. (laughs) Yes. And uh, because we know that this, definitely this part and also the environment section are going to be a little dark, I asked Kyla to prep a bunch of dad jokes and we're just going to (laughs) whip them out at different times. So they're going to be really inappropriate and not fit into the topic at all and probably really minimalize some really horrible things. And I feel really (laughs) bad for saying them. You're going to be like, this person died in this horrific way. Tell us a joke. And I'm going to be like, ah! (laughs) Make us all laugh. (laughs) Go, dance monkey. (laughs) Uh, Before we get started, though, do you want to... Do you want to talk to us about the challenge that you did for this episode? You you tried something a little new, didn't you? Yeah, okay. So (laughs) as if this podcast wasn't costing me enough money, I went out and bought (laughs) a sewing machine, which to be fair is something that I've been (laughs) wanting to do for a long time, but I've lived a very transient life uh, that just didn't lend itself to owning a sewing machine. So I haven't actually touched a sewing machine since I was 15, 14 or 15, like in school. And even then I was pretty lazy about it. I did the bare minimum that my teacher wanted. And then I went and did like the cooking stuff. That was more my jam. But I decided recently that making clothes probably isn't that hard. And I could make my own because I every time I try on clothes, I'm like, oh, this doesn't fit just right. Or I, I like this part of this outfit, but not this part. And I was like, oh, I could just make my own. Easy. So I buy a sewing machine, and and it wasn't easy. Oh, no. (laughs) Who knew? I I feel like I did know that going in, but I was like, oh, I'll figure it out. So 
I didn't really know what I needed, so I didn't have any thread or a pattern. Uh, and I was like, I'll make a dress. So I had to like run out and get some thread, but I didn't get a pattern. So I just went on like the internet and I was Googling like how to make a dress, easy stuff, uh, but it's not easy. So then I switched to like pajama pants. I was like, okay, I'll make some pajama pants. And the re part of the reason I switched from that as well uh, to that from a dress is that I also didn't have any material because I didn't go out and buy any, but I had a bunch of like old clothes that I wasn't using, uh, that I'm going to be using for another project, but I decided I would take some fabric from one of these clothing items. And it used to be pants, actually. So I, I kind of took pants and then I was going to repurpose them back <laughs> into them pants. pants. <laughs> <laughs> but they weren't like, they like at the time... Is that upcycling? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, at the time when I bought them, I, I got them when I was in India and they didn't quite fit, but I really liked the pattern. So I like cut them up and I was going to turn them into a skirt. And I spent maybe six or seven hours just like hand stitching them when I was in India and it didn't wow. turn out so well. No, it turned, yeah, it turned out very badly. <laughs> Huge waste of effort. Uh, so I just had this like material and I was like, okay, but it wasn't enough to make a dress. I couldn't quite figure out how I was going to make that happen. So I was like, okay, I'll turn them back into pants and they'll be super comfortable. No, that's not what happened. Oh. No, yeah, I, <laughs> I tried to do it without a pattern. So I just like freehand cut it <laughs> and I, and I, and I like traced it with like a pair of other pants, but I was so dumb and I used pants with like an elastic in the waist. So my waist is a little bit too small. <laughs> Because <laughs> I forgot to stretch them out when I was cut. It was a whole thing. I cut them all, like, facing one way. So, like, they, they didn't... Basically, there was just no crotch in them. Like, there was just, like, not a lot of room downstairs because I cut them wrong. And, and then the machine kept jamming because I think I have bad sewing technique. And it was a... It was an effort. But I kind of was, like... I wanted to go in and just like make all of the mistakes that I knew I would eventually make at once. So I was like, right, I'll freehand it. I won't use a pattern. It's a very optimistic way of framing it. Yeah. And then I was like, okay. And then every mistake I make is like a mistake I won't make in the future. So now I'm going to go get some fabric and some thread and I'm going to have a real go at it. But I, for the challenge, I was like, okay, I'll use the fabric that I have. I'll use some thread that I like picked up and I'll turn these into pants. And uh, they are, <clears throat> yeah, worse pants now than they were when I bought them originally. <laughs> <laughs> My sewing lines are like all crooked. Like I didn't sew in a straight line at all. <laughs> uh, that was my challenge. A unmitigated disaster. But <laughs> I feel like it's going to lead into better things because I'm going to use yeah. this sewing machine to do more stuff with, for sure. You got to fuck up the first time you sew. I feel like that's just uh, necessity. So at least you did it with fabric you already had and didn't know what to do with. And after we record this episode, you'll have lots of good tips on which fabrics to choose for your next project. Yeah, great. I'm glad we're going to talk about fabrics because that is something that I've been struggling with. But leading into this conversation that we're going to have, uh, making clothes, I, you think is easy, but it's like not. And I already had a lot of like feels for people who worked in the garment industry because it's so fucked up. But also, it's not something that I can just do by myself. So like the respect of the people who work in the garment industry, I think it doesn't, it, whatever people, feel like it deserves, it deserves more. <laughs> yeah. And like a lot of times these kinds of jobs get talked about as like unskilled labor and it's not at all. It is an incredible amount of skill. It takes so much skill. Yeah. yeah. It's not something I can just do. I can't just pick up a sewing machine and make pants. And <laughs> you tried. <laughs> that, I mean, I, maybe if I had tried with a pattern, but, but the point is that like, it does take skill. Like, yeah, I'm sure that it's super easy for people who've done 10,000 pairs of pants, but 
it, you have to get to that point, it, you know? So yeah, I think that's a really good way to to sort of start framing our episode talking about the people that are behind the clothes that we make. Uh, and so I think the way to to sort of start talking about this issue is to talk about the business model that's at the center of the problem, um, and that's fast fashion. So fast fashion is something that's gotten a lot of buzz recently. Hassan Minaj did an episode of it on the Patriot Act. CBC recently did a documentary of it called Fashion's Dirty Secrets. There are also a bunch of books that are out on fast fashion. It's There's a lot of information out there if you want to about fast fashion, and people are talking about it more and more because it's really fucked. Uh, so Kyla, I'm curious, when you think about fast fashion, what are some of the brands that come to mind? Primark, H&M, um, Forever 21. Yep. Although I think they went bankrupt recently. Did they? Oh, I think so. That explains the closing out sales I've seen for them in <laughs> other countries. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, what, what brands do you think of? Yeah, so I think of those ones as well. Um, but then the big one that is also often talked about is Zara, because it was the brand that I sort was going to say them. Yeah. Drat. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, those are all fast fashion brands for sure. And Zara is sort of it was sort of the first brand to move majorly into fast fashion. So oftentimes, people will start their conversations about fast fashion by talking about them. Zara is also the world's largest fashion brand. And in 2018, it produced more than 450 million items. Whoa! That's in one year. Whoa! Although Zara was sort of the first fast fashion brand, uh, a lot of other retailers are now on the same business model. Um, and basically what happens is that brands will take designs from top tier fashion designers, and then they produce a cheaper version of it with a lot worse fabric, and they'll sell it at low prices to middle market consumers. So they're not going for like the cheapest of the cheap, but they're marketing at like your average middle class consumer that kind of wants to buy fashionable clothes, um, but like previously that would have been really expensive for them to do. Yeah. So instead of paying like $150 for a shirt, you're paying $50 for a shirt. Exactly. Or like 20 sometimes or 15, depending on the item. Uh, so it's called fast fashion essentially because production and sales have been sped up. Between 2000 and 2014, the number of garments doubled. So it's now 100 billion garments annually, which is pretty ridiculous. In 14 years? Yeah, in 14 years, it doubled. Now it's 100 billion annually. So if you think about that per person, that amounts to 14 new garments annually for each person on the planet. And realistically, it's not going to the entire planet. It's going to a much smaller section of people in wealthy countries. Yeah, so it's way more than 14 garments then, really. Yeah, and then when we wear it three times, it gets shipped to Africa where you can't like properly sell it and it just becomes garbage. Ah, but oh. spoiler for the environment section. <laughs> so yeah, basically fast fashion means that we have a lot of bad quality clothes and we don't wear them for very long. So on on average, if you were to guess um, how many times the average consumer wears clothes before they dispose of them, what would you guess? This is a statistic that I already hate. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh boy. 12 times. You're pretty close, actually. It's seven times, which... What? What? That's, that's <laughs> like half of what my guess was. <laughs> but it's not very often, right? And that's the average. So, like, there are things that are getting worn 
much more, uh, much less than seven times. And some things that people don't wear at all at any point. So shoppers are buying five times more clothing than they used to in 1980. And uh, in 2018, the average consumer bought 68 new garments in a year. Whoa! Yeah, that's... Close to 70 new things we're buying every year, and we're wearing them seven times or less. And Wow. I don't, like, I'm, I don't want to make listeners, like, feel called out because I'm, like, reacting to this. I feel like it's <laughs> one of those things that people probably just don't realize. Like, you probably don't think that, like, I've only worn this seven times or I, I've bought 68 garments this year. That's not something you think about. So if this sounds like you, I'm sorry if my reactions are making you feel called out. Uh, it's I am constantly shocked at, like, the amount of stuff that I am contributing to, which is what the point of this podcast is. So, Yeah, and I think a lot of people... So first of all, a lot of people don't realize how much they're buying and throwing out because we don't really think about it. But secondly, that's by design of the industry, right? Like, fast fashion is explicitly set up to not produce good clothing. We're getting shitty clothing that's on trend, and the industry is set up so we buy lots and lots of it, don't wear it for very long, and then buy something new, right? So if if you're sort of seeing your own consumption habits in this, like you can think about how to change it and part three will talk about how you can go about that. But know that it's, first of all, it's not just you, it's lots of people. Um, and secondly, know that it's the industry making you do this, right? Like they're really pushing you to, to buy shitty clothes. To change the practices, we have to change the industry basically. <sighs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Uh, the plus side of fast fashion, um, or the positive way to frame it is that it's democratized fashion in a sense. So it's brought high design to regular consumers. But the, the downside is that that's A, not really true because we're buying shitty clothes. Um, and B, it's caused a lot of problems. So let's talk about some of those problems. Yay! <laughs> so to just frame the problems with workers' rights, you also need to look at another set of changes that are happening at the same time as fast fashion, and that is the globalization of clothing supply chains, right? So that's often called offshoring, which basically means relocating factories to countries that have low labor costs. And so fast fashion doesn't work without offshoring, and offshoring is sort of like it's spurred on because of the model of fast fashion. So those you really can't separate them. So I, I, I found a good stat, and that it's that in 1991, 56% of all clothes that were bought in the United States were also American-made. Uh, by 20, or, or by uh, 2012, that was only 2.5%. Whoa. So it went from over half to... Almost nothing. 3%, basically, yeah. And the problem is today that supply chain isn't only offshore. So it's not only happening elsewhere in the world where you have less labor protections, but it's also fractured. So you'll have fabric that's grown and woven and dyed in one place, and then it's cut in another, sewn somewhere else, and then the zippers and oh, buttons so being shipped are all everywhere. elsewhere. Yeah, and it's being shipped everywhere in between, right? So Brands rarely own the factories that make their clothes as well, which is another problem, because uh, now you've got like 12 companies to deal with in the supply chain. Um, and that's before you count the fact that those suppliers will often, because of the tight timelines and low prices, they'll contract to subcontractors that are 
not very accountable and go out of business a lot. So it's very hard if you're... Oh, yeah. This is not to let brands off the hook, but it can be very hard to keep track of your supply chains because oftentimes unauthorized subcontractors uh, will be doing really shitty things. And that's where a lot of the scandals come out. So I used to work for a big fashion company. Uh, I used to work in the head office doing like admin for the women's wear department. So I have seen this from the back end a little bit where my job was to basically like follow like, well, I didn't follow up with suppliers, although I have done that with other jobs. I've been I've done purchasing a lot in like industry, but in the fashion industry specifically, I was very aware of the fact that our clothes came from mostly Turkey, Bangladesh in India, um, and a few from like Nepal. And we as a company obviously cared that these workers were treated well, because if they're not, then there can be a huge consumer backlash. And the company, just like a lot of retail companies, wasn't doing super great, but it was a super old company. So um, a couple of our competitors had like gone into bankruptcy in the last few years. So it's one of those things where I know that they cared, but they didn't care for the right reasons. They cared because they didn't want like a consumer backlash, which is fine. Do you know what? Whatever gets them caring. Yes. But the key is to care more as consumers and to change our practices so that that necessarily changes their mindsets. Yeah. But because I knew that like we were going to these factories, the factories, yeah, they would subcontract and we can't really control the contractors. We're not hiring them. They're being hired by these factories. And we would do like spot checks and uh, my my manager would frequently go to India to check on the factories, but you know, they know we're coming. So of course they're going to, they're going to clean up. And I, I don't know that any of our factories were doing a bad job. Maybe, maybe we had ethical factories, but I wouldn't know that because it's really hard to check on. Yeah. So that, I mean, the business model of fast fashion, offshoring, and also the fractured supply chain, those three things are basically in some why everything we're about to talk about is shitty. And why it's so hard to deal with. Because, yeah, like from the from the perspective of my managers in this fashion company where we were working with the suppliers directly, they cared. Like the people I worked with were good people. They didn't want our stuff coming from people who'd been exploited. But it's so much bigger than just like one or two people in the company, right? Like it's just oh, – it's such a huge mechanism that just turns and turns. <laughs> so – um. As we've sort of been previewing, uh, this creates problems for workers' rights. Before we get into sweatshops, what I want to just talk about first is what the fashion industry supply chain looks like, because I think that can make things a little bit more concrete for people. So speaking in very general terms, the fashion industry has a six-stage supply chain. So first, you have to plant and harvest raw materials. So that could be cotton or wool or, you know, any kind of fabric has to be grown or created or extracted. Then that fabric has to be weaved into cloth, basically. Step three is finishing the fabric, which can look like a lot of different things, um, and then shipping that cloth to distributors. In the next step, then the garments are produced, so they get cut and sewn and things like that. And then after that, they get shipped to the warehouse, and then they get distributed to storefronts. So there are six general stages, but within that, there's a whole bunch of things going on. And at any point in the supply chain, you can have exploitation issues, and it can be really hard because factories aren't owned by the big brands to keep them accountable. 
So sweatshops. Uh, when you think sweatshops, what do you think? Nike. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Nike. I know that they've come a long way, but that's like the first thing I think of is like the scandals of the 90s, right? Yes. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's one incentive for brands to sign on to initiatives that change things because sometimes that brand mentality can really stick. Yeah, I would say like in Nike's defense, I think they're one of the big companies that have changed the most, but it's because they got the most backlash originally, I think, when people were starting to realize how messed up fast fashion is. But it's what I think about. I also think about, um, what was, was it in Bangladesh where that factory like exploded or something? Yeah, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but for sure, that's in a lot of people's minds. And I also think about, yeah, children sewing stuff. That's what I think about when I think of sweatshops. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a lot of that's going on. Sweatshops, I also think sweat, right? Oh, yeah. They're hot. That's why they're called that. Sweatshops have existed for basically as long as we've had mechanized um, garment industries, right? So in the 1830s, something called the lock stitch sewing machine was invented. And that really fundamentally changed how clothes were made. And uh, so I don't know how much our listeners will know about the Industrial Revolution. um, But most people learn about it at least a little bit in school. And, and basically, people were sort of moved from primarily living in rural areas and living sort of like subsistence agriculture to moving into cities and working in factories. And one of the big industries behind this was actually the textile industry, so clothing and other kinds of fabrics. And cotton mills in particular were like nightmare landscapes, I A lot of people died. That's not good for your lungs to work in a cotton mill. No. And actually, like, a lot of the the sort of big labor thinkers, so, like, if you think about um, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, the big communists, um, a lot of what they were writing about wasn't specifically in reaction to the conditions they saw in cotton mills because they just saw death, mutilation, rape, illness happening all the time. And unfortunately... The sweatshops that we have today don't look super different from those sweatshops. Uh, I think it is at this point that we should have the first dad joke. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) let me see. Okay, so uh, I did prep, I prepped some some bad jokes, um, but I also prepped (laughs) some pickup lines. So would you rather, would you rather be picked up or would you rather have a dad joke? What would you like to start with? I think I would like to start by being picked up. Okay. Uh, are you from Tennessee? Because you're the only 10 I see. Ah. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) All right. Well, I feel like um, I'm at least 10% happier. So So, yeah, um, sweatshops have been around for a really long time. Another sort of historical incident that people might be familiar with is something called the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire that happened in 1911. And it was a big fire that happened in a sweatshop in New York. And until 9-11, actually, it was the largest disaster in that city. So Whoa, really? Yeah. I think I should have known that because you were like in a play about this when we were in 10th <laughs> or 11th grade, weren't we? <laughs> this was like the play you were in. I went and saw it, it was, one time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had a solid Irish accent for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love 11th grade plays. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so 
In the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, 146 employees died. Um, 123 of them were women. This is another thread that we'll hear about throughout this episode. Most garment workers in the past and also today are women. So this is fundamentally a gender issue as well. So the good news is that sweatshops kind of got better for a while um, because during like the mid 20th century, you had a lot of labor activism that put in place legislation that protected workers. So a lot of the problems that you were seeing from the Industrial Revolution through to the early 1900s ended. Unfortunately, in the 1990s, offshoring started. And so those old style sweatshops came roaring back to life just in a different location. So if we, if we look at some of the countries that are the major garment exporters today, um, a lot of them are Asian countries. So China is the top apparel supplier. Then there's also Bangladesh, India, Hong Kong, and Turkey. The EU is also one of the top suppliers, um, but not kind of the same issues, different issues. Some workers' issues for sure, but mostly when we're talking about sweatshops, we're talking about Latin America and Asia. So, sweatshops, they really suck. <laughs> so, <laughs> is that the name of the section in your notes? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> so, um, offshore sweatshops today don't look all that much different than the ones in the early Industrial Revolution. So, they're hot, they're unsanitary, they're dusty, they're unsafe. There often isn't food or clean drinking water. Workers work for long hours, they get really low wages. They often don't get breaks, and they're often forced to work overtime for no pay. And buildings are often locked, which is really fucked, so you cannot escape. What, from the outside? Uh-huh. That's why so many people die in the fires. I was just going to say, that wouldn't pass a fire safety inspection no. <laughs> anywhere. That's fucked. <laughs> I hate this. I hate all of these statistics. I'm making my own clothes from now on. Yeah. In some cases, workers aren't allowed to talk to each other at all. Yeah, because otherwise they'd uprise, probably. Yeah, and since most workers are women and most supervisors are men, sexual assault and violence happens a lot. Fuck this. But you know what the worst part is? Is that if I make my own clothes, these guys aren't making any money. So, like, what's the... Because if I take my business, like, away from them, then, like, they can't feed themselves. So, like, how do you... How do you... Ah. So that's often the refrain, but I read a really good um, article basically arguing against that. Oh, good. Please tell me. Yeah, I I can't remember the author, but it was basically talking about sweatshop conditions. And he was saying, actually, workers that are in agriculture or other areas often have a lot better conditions. So don't tell me that I should be grateful for being exploited, which I think is a really good point. Like, Yes, it's true that sweatshops provide jobs. That is technically correct. <laughs> but they are shitty jobs, and they should be better. And if that means we have to pay slightly more for clothes, I think that should be the way it goes. Yeah. Yep. Just to give people a little bit more context, I want to talk about a scandal that happened in the early 2000s. And uh, it basically, it was a sweatshop in Honduras that was supplying clothes for clothing lines that Jay-Z and P. Diddy had. So... The call out there. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I mean, I feel like these guys are probably so far removed from the production of their own stuff that, like, they would have no idea. But also, that's problematic. You should know where your stuff comes they from. They shouldn't yeah. be, yeah. Your name's yeah. on it, right? Like, you should care. Exactly, yeah. So, I'm just going to read a quick excerpt from the book Fashionopolis that um, talks about this incident. So, at a Senate Democratic Party committee hearing, Lita Ali Gonzalez a 19-year-old Honduran garment worker recounted through a translator the horrors that she had experienced at Southeast Textiles, or Citiza. The industrial zone where Citiza was located was surrounded by a towering wall, its entrance a locked gate guarded by armed sentries. Official hours were 7 a.m. to 4.45 p.m. at 75 to 98 cents per hour, but there was mandatory unpaid overtime. Just one shirt would pay more than my wage for a week, Gonzalez testified. Supervisors would stand over us shouting and cursing at us to go faster and calling us filthy names like Maltito or Damned Donkey, Bitch, and worse. She continued, The temperature rose so high, workers were sweating all day. Fabric fibers and dust turned to hair, turned hair white or red or whatever the color of the shirts we were working on. The drinking water reportedly contained fecal matter. Workers were forbidden to speak. They could only use the restroom once in the morning and once in the afternoon, and before entering, they were searched. Normally, there was no toilet paper or soap. Women were subjected to pregnancy tests. If one came back positive, she'd be sacked. All were frisked upon entering in the factory each day, and anything found, including candy or lipstick, was confiscated. They were patted down again when they punched out at night. So this is what the conditions are like, you know. Thanks, I hate it. Why don't we do a dad joke? <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I got one ready. Actually, this one is a little bit textile related, so okay. uh, let's pull this out. I bought some shoes from a drug dealer. I don't know what he laced them with, but I was tripping all day. Get out of town. <laughs> uh, did that lighten the mood? I still feel pretty sad. Yeah. It did lighten the mood, though. I just think this is a sad subject. <laughs> It is, yeah. I mean, you know what? I'm going to tell you one more. I'm going to tell you one more. Okay. Uh, I'm reading a book about anti-gravity. It's impossible to put down. <laughs> I thought you'd like that one. I get the sense a lot. All right. All right. All right. Tell me more. Yeah. So it gets even worse better. Uh, so the wealthy countries. <laughs> In wealthy countries like the U.S. and Canada, actually, sweatshops do sometimes still exist, unfortunately. Um, so while workers' protections got rid of legal sweatshops, there are still illegal sweatshops, and they're a hotbed for things like human trafficking. And then there are also factories that are just breaking the law and enforcement isn't really dealing with it. So sometimes you get a combination of both in a sweatshop, which is great. Do you know what we could do is we could take some of these sweatshop jobs that are going to disappear because I'm making my own clothes and we can put those people uh, into employment as enforcers for making sure that the rest of the garment industry is doing a good job. Yeah, just hire more regulators. <laughs> <laughs> hire yeah. them straight out of a sweatshop that's going out of business. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, yeah, um, domestic sweatshops are in particular problem in the States um, and especially in Los Angeles um, because there's a large undocumented immigrant population there. And I mean, this is a thread in really every um, labor subject we cover on this podcast that like migrants are not well protected <laughs> in the United States. 
especially, but anywhere. And they get exploited for that reason. And it sucks. Well, they don't, the worst part about, I don't know if it's the worst part, but uh, this is a little bit off topic, but another problem with undocumented, like, immigrants is they're afraid to go to the doctor, even though doctors, I think in Canada, I think maybe you told me this, they're, they're allowed to go to the doctor and, like, get treated, but they're afraid to go because they don't want to get, like, found out. And so they'll just, they'll just be sick and miserable or hurt and just suffer through it. And it's like, I can't, I can't. That happens when they're victims of crime, too. It really sucks. Yeah, they um, won't call the police. Why would they? They want to get found out. Yeah. So about half the apparel manufacturing workers in LA are estimated to be undocument- undocumented workers, and they make about $4 a day. So yes, most sweatshops that we're going to talk about are offshore, so they're not in wealthy countries, but there are sweatshops in wealthy countries, too, and they are also shitty. But let's talk about the Rana Plaza explosion, um, which you had mentioned was one of the first things that came to your mind when we talked about sweatshops. And uh, I think that's probably true for a lot of people, but you might not know the details or maybe not everybody does know about it. So I just want to talk a little bit about it. Cool. So this is just to say that before we talked about the generally shitty working conditions of sweatshops... But in addition to that, there are still frequent sweatshop disasters that are on the level of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, or actually even bigger. And lots of people die as a result. Well, if they're locked into a building that's on fire, then sure. Uh-huh. Yep. And that is pretty much how it happens all the time. <laughs> so um, one of the most famous disasters was the Rana Plaza incident that took place in Bangladesh in 2013. So basically what happened is on April 13th, 2013, there was an explosion at the Rana Plaza garment factory and it ripped a hole in the wall. So when that happened, engineers were sent in and the engineers wanted to condemn the building immediately, uh, but the owner refused. So it remained open. And the next day workers returned because they were afraid their pay would be docked if they didn't. Then the power went out sometime during the day And as the backup generators went on, the building basically began to quake, and then it went down. I just want to read a couple of quotes from people that were affected. Oh, but I think you warned me. This is, so this is a, I think we should give a trigger warning here. Uh, Yeah. What you're about to read is is really bad. Really upsetting. So if you guys want to skip ahead by a minute or two, if you don't want to hear some really upsetting accounts of this terrible disaster, then no shame. We don't blame you. But I have to listen, so let's have it. (laughs) So, worker Shiva Begum was stuck and had to wait 16 hours for a rescue crew to remove her. She says, They showed up with iron rods and pipes and pried me out. They said my guts were all over the place. I passed out and came to my senses 27 days later. So, those are the kind of injuries it can cause. Uh, Here's the second one. This one's worse. So, Mamadul Hassan Hridoy was inspecting jeans on the seventh floor when everything went dark and silent. The generators started, he recalled, and it felt like the floor under my feet was moving. Then it was disappearing. When he opened his eyes in the rubble, he realized he was pinned under a concrete pillar. As everything came into focus, he saw that he was face-to-face with one of his good friends, Faisal, who worked on the second floor as a showing machine operator. I'm not sure how, Herdoy told me in a whisper. I guess my floor dropped down to his. 
Faisal's skull was shattered, and his brains were spilling out. Prudhoi began to cry. I can't forget how his head exploded in front of me, he said, sobbing. Those memories still haunt me. So I bring up those two quotes just to sort of personalize the statistic that when the Rana Plaza disaster happened, 1,134 people died and another 2,500 people were injured. So that is like 3,600 stories like that one. I don't know. It's just for a lot of people, this this was sort of a catalyzing moment. So there is something good that came out of it. But the really infuriating thing is that it was the third high profile sweatshop disaster within three years in Bangladesh. So really, it should never have happened to begin with, because we really should have acted the first two times. So in December 2010, there was a garment factory fire that killed 29 and injured more than 100. Uh, and Gap had just finished inspecting that, inspecting that factory. So their inspections clearly did not work. In no November 2012, there was another fire that killed at least 117 and left 200 injured. Um, and Sears, Walmart, and Disney all had products produced there. Overall, between 2006 and 2012, there were more than 500 Bangladeshi garment workers who died in factory fires. So there's absolutely no reason that Rana Plaza should have happened. There were already enough warning signs that the industry should have been moving on this. So after that fire in 2010, the first of the three major ones, um, there were NGOs that called for something, called for and created something called the Bangladesh Fire and Building Safety Agreement. It went unsigned until 2012. No brands signed on to this, even though there had already been a major disaster that should have been pulling at their consciences. Eventually, there was an ABC News story that came out, and so a few, a few brands started to sign on. But most of the other ones didn't do it until after the Rana Plaza explosion. And even then, there were a number of brands that decided to go with a watered-down voluntary version instead called the Alliance for Bangladesh Worker Safety. It was not as good, but a number of really major brands went with that one instead because they weren't serious about the commitments. Sorry, I haven't said much. It's just, this is all super upsetting. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's just like, it's impossible to hear about the stuff without being super angry and upset about everything. I'm like on the verge of crying. <laughs> you are crying. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry, Kyla. I know, I'm, I'm really sad. Those quotes were so sad. This was me while I was reading it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair. I mean, it just proves that I am a human with reasonable emotions. This is very upsetting. Yeah. Maybe at this point, we should just say, listeners, if you're upset by this, that's totally okay. It's totally normal <laughs> to feel upset by the insane bullshit that companies let happen. It's just, it's important to know that, like, change can happen. So... Rana Plaza should make you angry and it should make you sad and disgusted, but it should also make you feel optimistic because the activism that it catalyzed actually has made a difference. So since, since Rana Plaza, m most major brands started to sign on, it has started to shift industry standards and um, Bangladesh has actually started to get better on inspecting buildings. It's still not perfect and there still are factory fires that happen. But we're starting to very slowly see some progress. And the best way that you can sort of, I think, take in this information and assimilate it into your own 
approaches is to try to find brands that are trying on this kind of stuff. And we'll talk yeah. at the end about some sort of tools you can use for that. So we are going to get positive, we promise. <laughs> Should I give you another joke now? Like, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've got one ready uh, that I was thinking about you when I found this one. Ready? Love it. What does a zombie vegetarian eat? What? Grains. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Yeah. I couldn't do the voice for it. (laughs) I feel like you should be shoveling the driveway and telling me to, like, drive more slowly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Um, Okay, I'll give you one more. One more. One more joke. Okay. Love it. Love it. Love it. What's the best part about living in Switzerland? I mean, it's clearly raclette, but tell me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, but the flag is a big plus. (laughs) Uh, That one is really dumb. (laughs) For anyone who isn't familiar with the Swiss flag, it is a big plus. (laughs) It's what it looks like. (laughs) It's a cross. Okay, tell me some more stuff that's going to make me cry more. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. So next we're going to talk about child labor. So unfortunately, that is also like sweatshops. Child labor has also been a thing going back to sort of early garment factories. And lots of sweatshops today have children working in them. So for instance, in 2016, H&M, Next, and Esprit were found to have Syrian refugee children sewing and hauling bundles of clothes in subcontracted workshops in Turkey. Wait, what year did you say that was? 2016. Fuck that. Fuck that. Fuck Fuck all of that. (laughs) Fuck everything. (sighs) Uh, Yeah. So sometimes what happens is that children are basically lured from their homes to work in sweatshops. Or I guess the parents are lured to give their children to sweatshops. Um, So there was a report by the Center for Research on Multinational Corporations and the India Committee of the Netherlands that basically found that uh, there are recruiters in southern India that would convince parents that are in impoverished rural areas to send their daughters to spinning mills. Um, And the promises are basically that they'd get a well-paid job, comfortable accommodation, three nutritious meals a day, opportunity for training and schooling, and a lump sum payment at the end of the three years. Oh, that sounds fucking great. Yeah, it does. Unfortunately, instead, uh, these were false promises and the girls end up working under appalling conditions that basically amount to forced labor. That's what the report concluded. So. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I I felt like that's where the story was going, but like the promises, I can understand the parents' side of that. Yes. So that's sometimes how this kind of stuff happens. And so Bangladesh, China, Egypt, India, Pakistan, Thailand, and Uzbekistan are particularly notorious for child labor in the textile and garment industry. So... I mean, this is not to say that any time you see a made in label there it's definitely using child labor but a lot of the times i mean those are the countries where it happens the most yeah and the point is you wouldn't know you wouldn't know even if you're buying from a supposedly sweatshop free brand it could be that brand could unknowingly have been produced by a subcontracted factory that uses child labor so child labor it occurs at different phases in the supply chain so Sometimes it can be the production of cotton seeds, sometimes it can be cotton harvesting or yarn spinning, and sometimes it can actually be the, like, cut, make, trim garment production. So there was an investigation 
by um, SOMO, this, the Center for Research on Multinational Corporations, uh, that basically found that 60% of workers at spinning mills in India were under 18 when they started working there. So it's a lot. Um, we'll also talk a little bit about Uzbekistan's cotton industry uh, because it's particularly bad. Um, so the problem with Uzbekistan's cotton industry that makes it particularly bad, in addition to just any kind of child labor is bad, is that it's actually state-sponsored. Cool. So mm-hmm. Government approved. Yeah, cool, cool, Big cool. thumbs up Great. from the guys in charge. <laughs> Amazing. I love it. Just kidding. I hate everything. Yeah. So yeah. Every year, basically one million people, and that includes children, like children, as well as teachers and doctors, they're basically dumped into Uzbekistan's cotton fields to pick cotton. And they're taken from their jobs and their schools. They're sometimes threatened with expulsion or dismissal or even physical violence, and they're compelled to meet quotas to help the government earn money. It's a somewhat unique case of actually state-sanctioned mass mobilization of child labor, Um, And basically, the way it works is like the Uzbekistan government sets cotton quotas. And if farmers don't fill their quotas, they can actually be kicked off of their land. So it's a big deal if you don't meet your cotton quota. What? Yeah. But farmers are poor and they can't afford extra farmhands for harvest. So state and local officials will often order employees of the government Uh, like doctors and nurses, as well as students to go into the field so that farmers can meet their quotas. So a study that was done at the University of London uh, found that between 86 and 100% of the schools and districts that they studied uh, were subject to compulsory recruitment of children in grades 5 to 9. So that's ages 11 to 14. And the students were employed in the cotton harvest for between 51 and 63 days without breaks and under unsanitary, unhealthy, and unnutritious conditions. So No, and cotton is one of the fabrics that I was, like, looking for because I don't know if we'll have released it by the time this episode comes out, but we did a laundry episode (laughs) and synthetic fibers are really bad for the environment. So I was like, oh, I'll only buy natural fibers from now on. Cotton's a really easy one to find and you can get good clothes, but it turns out it's maybe worse. So cool. Yeah, it depends on where you get your cotton from, but yeah. So if you want to avoid this, the Responsible Sourcing Network has basically, they've gotten 314 companies to pledge to eliminate Uzbekistan cotton from their supply chains. So if you go to the research notes for this episode, I've got a link there and you can click the link to actually see the the list of companies that have signed on to this pledge. Um, Otherwise, you can just Google Responsible Sourcing Network in Uzbekistan cotton. It'll come up. And so as a result of those advocacy efforts, there's been a lot done and you can actually exercise a choice to not have state-sponsored child slavery in your cotton supply chain, if not really anything else. (laughs) That's at least one thing you can concretely do. So a couple of brands that haven't signed on, um, American Apparel hadn't signed on as of December 2019, nor had Polo Ralph Lauren. I also did not see Roots Canada on the list, but it is possible they're like under some other company. So I'm just going to give me pause next time I go there. 
So yeah, there are other cases of child labor that's important to remember. Um, the Uzbekistan case I just wanted to talk about specifically because it is um, state-sponsored and that's really fucked. Yeah. Um, should we do another pickup line, maybe? <laughs> yeah, you got it, man. <laughs> Say nice things about me. Kind yeah, of. <laughs> coming up, coming up. Uh, <laughs> Kristen, if you were a Transformer, you'd be Optimus Fine. Ooh, I would be Optimus Fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think the only other Transformer I can name is Bumblebee. Is that a real Transformer? Yeah, you know, you're right. Yeah, uh, those, those are the only two. It. Those are also the only two that I can name. Uh, there's a bad guy. And we've also officially talked about bees in this podcast. Oh, yeah. I feel like we need to drop <laughs> it in at least every episode now. It's like a, it's yeah, like it's a running Easter thing. Yeah. <laughs> bees. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to give you one more pickup line. I love it. Yeah, I think we should do two because uh, this is deeply upsetting. Um, okay. It's a good thing I brought my library card because I am totally checking you out. <laughs> I did some finger guns there. <laughs> it's nice because it's a nice pickup line, but it also promotes the use of libraries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought that you would appreciate that one for sure. <laughs> okay, make me sad again. Let's have it. Yeah, so I, we're coming to the end of the sad stuff, but there's a couple more to cover. So forced labor is also big in the fashion industry. Fashion industry is one of the biggest sources of modern slavery. So the Walk Free Foundation estimates that 127.7 billion US dollars worth of garments are imported annually by G20 countries um, that are at risk of having modern slavery involved in their production. So that's a lot. Um a lot, if you look at sort of like the causes of modern slavery, a lot of them look kind of similar to the some of the child uh, labor circumstances that we talked about, like debt bondage, debt bondage, not having contracts, things like that. But being given promises that they think sound really good, and it's not the case at all. Yeah, and then they get moved to somewhere where they can't really escape. Um, so I won't talk too much more about that because yeah, they're locked in all the time. Oh, so I'll, I will just say that. Uh, <laughs> I was surprised that this came up, but I, I don't know if you'd heard about what China's doing in Xinjiang province with their Uyghur population. That's a, a lot of jargon. Uh, so the Chinese government has a, a Muslim minority in primarily in a, a region called Xinjiang, um, and they're often referred to as Uyghurs. And uh, there's been a lot of coverage in the news lately about these re-education camps that they've been forced into. There's questions about whether it's they're really concentration camps and whether there's a genocide going on there. I have vaguely heard about this. I'm excited to learn more from you now. <laughs> yeah, so I was surprised to know uh, that they are also operating forced labor camps in Xinjiang, and uh, they're producing, among other things, clothing there. So uh, basically what happens is Uyghurs are detained in re-education camps, and they're either while they're there forced to work in factories, or afterwards they're sort of released on condition of working in these factories. Brands so far have not have said that they haven't found evidence that the labor in these factories are forced, but journalists hard disagree with this. So sure, okay, you know, we've gotten our liability out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't add us. Journalism suggests <laughs> that it is probably forced. <laughs> this is an unbiased podcast with no opinions of our own. Please don't add <laughs> us. Big companies don't come at us. <laughs> Do you look at fisticuffs? Uh. 
Yeah, yeah. Chris- okay, Kristen's ready to fight. You can add her. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, the last the last harm of the garment industry for workers I want to talk about is just quickly women's rights and sexual assault. Just to remind everybody that this is fundamentally a gender inequality issue and that approximately 80% of the workers in the garment industry are women between the ages of 18 and 35. It's mostly women. And so that means that all of the exploitation we're talking about, like that itself is a gender issue because it's mostly happening to women. But in addition to that, rape, sexual assault, and sexual harassments, are it, they're big problems in sweatshops. So a study done in Vietnamese factories found that 43% of women that were interviewed had suffered at least one form of violence or harassment in the last year. So that's not over time. That's half of them in the last year have experienced this. And then another study by Action Aid looked at garment workers in Bangladesh and found that 80% have either seen or directly experienced sexual violence or harassment in the workplace. So that's almost everybody. Cool. I hate all of yes. this. <laughs> yeah, so um, we hate everything. So why is everything so shitty? <laughs> I just... <laughs> It's fast fashion in the fractured supply chain, right? So when disasters and abuses happen, brands often claim that they aren't responsible and that the sweatshops in question weren't authorized suppliers, and that makes it really hard to deal with. Basically, the way it works is brands will have approved suppliers, and those approved suppliers will subcontract to sweatshops. And then when a scandal happens, brands that claim to be sweatshop free will often claim that they had no idea that their contractors were subcontracting, even though it happens all the time. Well, and also like sometimes they have no choice but to subcontract because the fast fast uh, the fast fashion industry is so huge that the companies that they do source can't keep up with the demand, right? So they have to subcontract in order to fulfill the orders that are being placed for them. Yeah. So next question, are things getting better? Not really is the short answer. So these problems are really fundamental to how fast fashion works. There's a need to get clothing that's made really quickly and really cheaply. And as a result, people in the environment inevitably suffer. Having said that, there have been some changes. So the first industry shift was a move towards supplier codes of conduct. Um, So that started to happen actually in the 1990s. And uh, the first code of conduct in the fashion industry was from Levi Strauss in 1992. Oh, good for them. Yeah. And there actually has been a lot going on in that. Now, like most major brands will have supplier codes of conduct and they will have audits that enforce the codes for their authorized suppliers. Didn't you tell me off, uh, Mike, at one point, though, that the gene industry is so fucked up, we have to do a whole episode on it. So maybe Uh I shouldn't praise Levi so quickly. (laughs) No, although... um, The reading that I've done suggests they were one of the better brands, then briefly really sucked, and now again are one of the better brands. So okay. Okay, good for you, Levi. (laughs) Yeah. So spoiler for a jeans episode we'll do at some point in the future. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, so there, there are now audits, there are now codes of conduct, so there's something happening. These audits aren't perfect, though, partially because the monitors themselves don't have any oversight, so like bribery happens, and... Audits are often not, like, they're often scheduled, so workers can coach their factories and, like, clean things up. But hey, there's progress. 
1998, only 15% of company codes included freedom of association and the right to collectively bargain. And now almost all of them do. So the codes of conduct cover more things and activists and consumers are really pushing companies to actually do real audits and to have real consequences for the suppliers when they fail the audits. And another big move is transparency. So if people remember from our very first episode, uh, Fashion Revolution produces a transparency index. Um, and that's basically about who's being transparent in things like having supplier lists, right? And so just in general, it's becoming more common for brands to publish supplier lists. And that's a huge part of the solution. So how can you act to promote human rights in the clothing industry? Please tell me. <laughs> yeah. So I think there, first, you can kind of get involved with activists that are working on these issues. So I've mentioned a bunch throughout this podcast. You could be involved with any of those. That um, Fashion Revolution is, I think, a cool organization. You can check out their transparency index. Participate in Fashion Revolution Week. Um, or participate also in, they've got a social media movement called um, hashtag who made my clothes and hashtag I made your clothes. So you can check those out. And uh, if you're interested in fashion, then they have a fashion open studio. That's a cool initiative you might want to get involved with. And then uh, there's Fairware, which is an organization that's working to promote worker and human rights and garment production. So they focus on that sewing, cutting, trimming part of garment production, uh, which isn't the whole part of the supply chain, but it's an important part, and it's the most labor-intensive. And so they have a code of labor practices that 133 brands have signed, and you can check them out. You can also check out that um, Uzbekistani cotton pledge. Make sure that the companies you're buying from aren't sourcing child slave labor that's state-sanctioned. Those are all things you can do. I like that. That's a nice way to, <laughs> um, I assume we're almost done, to tie it up is to have some optimistic like steps that can be taken because this was dark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you'll learn about more concrete steps you can take in part three of this series. But yeah, at least that's something for now. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I know if this felt heavy to listeners, uh, I think... The, well, first of all, the last episode will hopefully be a little bit more light. Uh, for sure, it'll have more answers. So just stick with us <laughs> and we'll, we'll try not yeah, to... Yeah, and actually the environment one is not nearly as heavy as this one either. Perfect. So. Well, and we'll try not to, we'll try not to release the episodes too far apart from each other. So you can, you can quickly listen to the next ones and cleanse your palate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm going to end with one more um, bad joke and then we'll we'll move on I think to to greener pastures. Okay, are you ready? Mhm. Mm why do chicken coops only have two doors? I don't know, why? Because if they had four, they would be chicken sedans. Ha! <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Love it. So glad you did the dad jokes. Is there anyone you want to um, call out on this episode in a positive way? <laughs> Is there any, like, supportive friend? I have someone I can say if you do not. I don't have a friend to shout out for this one, but I can shout out the book that I used for a lot of this episode. So, yeah, I'd like to give a quick shout out to um, Dana Thomas, the author of Fashionopolis, because I used a lot of the stats and excerpts that she had in her book for this episode. So thank you. 
Nice. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I can't believe you read a whole book for this. What dedication. <laughs> and you know what? I'll shout out my friend Persia, who's always been a really supportive friend. And she actually went to school for fashion design. So she's going to have a lot of stuff to say to me after this episode comes out. And <laughs> I'll tweet any interesting things that she says. Uh, and on that note, you can follow us on Twitter at Pullback Podcast <laughs> uh, or at Kristen Pugh or at Kyla Hewson if you want to get one of us directly. You can send us an email to pullbackpod at gmail.com. You can like and review us on Apple iTunes or anywhere you listen to podcasts, except for Spotify. I don't think they do ratings, and that's my podcast uh, listening place of choice. But if you want to do us a huge favor and go over to Apple anyways and leave us a review, we would love it. Five stars. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time on the part two of this clothing episode. Thanks for joining us. Okay, Kristen, why do you never see elephants hiding in trees? Oh, it's something about trunks. I'm sure of this. <laughs> oh, that would be so much better. No, the answer what? is because they're so good at it. So you don't see them hiding because they're hiding and they're so good at hiding. You can't see them. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> okay, maybe that one's not. Uh, uh, that one needs work. <laughs> I'll workshop that one. Something about trunks is better. We'll come back to that one. <laughs>